Let us pray. Almighty God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us, for this world that you have made, for humanity that you have formed in your image and that you care for deeply. We thank you for your love expressed in the Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved Son whom you sent into the world. We thank you for your faithfulness to your purposes and to your covenants, your purposes to call out a people for yourself, a people for your presence, a people to be the recipients of your love and your care. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his life that he lived here on earth, even in the face of rejection and suffering. And we thank you for your faithfulness to him. Lord, you are a God who is mighty to save. You are the God who brought Israel up out of Egypt, brought them through the sea and through the wilderness and into the land of promise. You are the God who brought the Lord Jesus out of the grave, who vindicated his faithfulness and obedience and exalted him on high and designated him as Lord and King. And we come into your presence and bow before you and bow before this risen Lord Jesus Christ and acclaim worthy is the lamb that was slain. Lord, what amazing grace this is that you should use the death of your beloved son to accomplish so great a salvation and that we are the beneficiaries of that. So we thank you for your great love. Lord, you are mighty to save you are able to comfort, you are able to strengthen those who feel weak, to uplift those who are downcast. And Lord, as we uh, continue in, the, in this pandemic, there are many who are weary, who are tired, and we pray that you would strengthen those of us who are in this situation, that you would encourage our hearts and lift our spirits and give us cheer. Father, we uh, look forward to um, two weeks' time when we shall be able to gather again in person and the hope that is on the horizon as we emerge from the pandemic and um, can get back to more and more activities and gathering in person. But Lord, as we look around the world, I recognize that on a global level, that the pandemic is worse than ever. There are more cases of COVID than ever before. And we think of uh, countries like Turkey and Brazil and especially of India and are um, horrified at the scenes that we see on TV and the reports that come. And Lord, there are many of us who know people in these lands and are concerned for them. And I pray particularly for India, pray for our brothers and sisters here at PBCC who have family members there and who are concerned, who care. I pray that you would uh, Assure them of your presence uh, in their anxiety, in their concern, that you would lift their spirits. And I pray for IJM, especially their office in Mumbai, that we as a church support where there have been COVID cases and where they are working in such difficult conditions. Pray you sustain them and your safekeeping upon them. 
and pray for all those who are seeking to help the, the least fortunate, the poor, the needy uh, in that needy land, that you would sustain them. Father, we thank you for uh, the care of healthcare workers here and around the world and pray that you continue to sustain them. We thank you for the labors of those in our own family um, who are providing care, health care, that you'd uh, continue to sustain them. And for parents and for teachers um, continuing to uh, be stretched that uh, they would know your strengthening hand and your encouragement. Father, we are your people, the objects of your beloved care. We thank you for your love, for your grace, for your kindness, for your generosity to us. And as we are gathered together now remotely, we pray that you would bind us together through your spirit. We thank you for the gift of new life, and of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, and of being a family, a diverse family, all drawn together in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, as a scripture text to prepare for the message, Brian has uh, chosen a passage from the Lord's uh, prophet Isaiah, uh, in which he gives a word of comfort to those who feel that they have been forgotten that nobody notices them. So hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 40. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The word of the Lord. And now I hand over to Brian for this morning's message. Thank you, Bernard. Good morning, everyone. So as we come to the scriptures, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to the mystery of your workings, the grace that you give in the darkness. I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you. And you'd speak a word to everyone that's behind the camera. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of uh, the message this week is Forgotten in Your Dreams. Last week, we examined what it meant that the Lord is with us. Or is with Joseph. And then the narrator put the theology to the test in the tale of Joseph's betrayal. In the end, we learn the fact that Joseph, God was with Joseph, the fact that that was true did not spare him from danger or peril, but it did cause him to thrive in those settings. But this week, the doctrine will go under an even more extreme test. How is God with us when we feel utterly forgotten? 
God never does leave us, but sometimes it can feel like he does. And this is the issue of Jacob's favorite son that he will face not for days, not for weeks or months, but years. For 10 years, God leaves him alone in silence. And just when it looks like the human solution to his plight has come, once again, he is forgotten. So what happens to the human soul when our dreams are forgotten in a prison of silence? Our blessed narrator has no fear taking on these questions. And the tale that he weaves will shape Israel with a spirituality that enables her to live in the worst of times. And the question for us is whether we are courageous enough to receive it. Well, turn with me now to Genesis chapter 40, verses 1 and following. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. Well, the narrator introduces the scene with a very casual time marker after these things, which at first glance would appear as a short sequence in time. But in reality, Joseph served an uninterrupted sentence of some 10 years before the light of providence would break through into his dark world. You could only imagine the tension in Joseph's soul as he served the chief jailer under the shadow of God's silence. David's words written centuries later seem appropriate for Jacob's forgotten son, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Just when it seems that Joseph is at the breaking point, God breaks the silence and opens the door of hope through a surprising turn of events. Two of Pharaoh's chief officials, his chief cupbearer and the chief baker, end up in the same prison. In contrast to Joseph, however, they were punished for legitimate wrongdoing that utterly infuriated the king. Now these high-ranking officials supervised the protection of his food and drink, and therefore were among the most trusted individuals in the empire. And they also had significant political influence. With that in mind, you can only imagine what anger this breach of trust might cause. Now, to their surprise, when they arrive in the royal prison, rather than being treated with contempt by the prison warden, they are served with courteous care and tender concern. Little does Joseph know that God will use this unlikely encounter behind prison doors to open palace doors. Verse 5. And one night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in prison. Each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. Into that confining place, 
God breaks through in a dream in the night, giving each man his own dream, each with its own interpretation. Now, dreams figured large in the Egyptian world as a way of predicting the future. And Egypt had professional schools called Houses of Life that specialized in the interpretation of dreams. Typical of God's methods, he uses a medium highly valued in the culture and he usurps it for his own ends to demonstrate his lordship over all. Our text affirms that only God can reveal the future and he reigns supreme over all imperial powers. As Nana Sarna writes, despite the fact that Israel shared with its pagan neighbors a belief in the reality of dreams as a medium of divine communication, it never developed, as in Egypt and Mesopotamia, a class of interpreters or a dream literature. In the entire Bible, only two Israelites engaged in the interpretation of dreams. Joseph and Daniel. And significantly enough, each serves a pagan monarch, the one in Egypt, the other in Mesopotamia. Precisely in the lands in which interpreting dreams to determine the future flourished. The two dream, differing dreams on the same night, fill the king's prisoners with tremendous apprehension as to their potential fate. Verse 6. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast tonight, today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Well, Joseph's noble character is, is demonstrated by the care that he gives to every person under his care, whether to royalty in Potiphar's house or prisoners in the king's prison. Not only does he fulfill his external duties, he also probes into the internal welfare of those under his charge. So we should pause on this for a minute because this is so significant and how the kingdom works at work. You may not be able to interpret dreams, but all of us are priests. And we should always have an eye out for people, making them feel that they are more important than the tasks that they do. And be fully present with them and ask them how they are. Klaus Westerman suggests, human empathy releases the whole of what follows. And Joseph's care grants the king's officials the freedom to be vulnerable and open up their hearts to him. They've had significant dreams, but they lack qualified interpreters. In response, Joseph doesn't even blush in challenging their worldview by saying that interpretations belong to God alone and that God has granted him that gift. As Wenham states, it is not learning, but inspiration that matters. And Joseph invites these two royal officials to tell them, him their dreams, to which the cupbearer appears the most eager. Verse 9. So the cupbearer told the dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, 
And on the vine there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Well, the cupbearer's dream is built on the number three. First, the vine has three branches, and then it's as if time is speeded up. And he looks at the vine, and in a rapid blur, the vine moves from bud to blossom to ripen grapes to wine. And then in three movements, the all-important cup moves from the hand, his hand to Pharaoh's hand, an apt metaphor for his restoration to office. Verse 12. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Now, there's not a lot of interpretation needed by Joseph, except for the three branches that signify three days, which Joseph probably knows is Pharaoh's birthday, when he will decide their fate. It was typical on feast days and anniversaries for Pharaoh to grant amnesties. On that day, he tells the cup, the Pharaoh, he tells the cupbearer that Pharaoh will lift up his head, a suitable image for his welcome back into the presence of the king. Joseph then seizes on this new relationship as an opportunity for his own release. Verse 14. <clears throat> Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that should put me into the pit. Well, in these words, we are given a rare look into Joseph's heart. He's a man of strong faith. He believes it will go well with the cupbearer. And yet, he's a man in, in desperate need of human kindness. Kindness is that great word, the Hebrew word chesed, better translated covenant loyalty. And it speaks of when a person in need is totally dependent upon another to rescue them. So what a different Joseph we find here from the youth who with no sensitivity imposed his dreams on his family. For the first time in the story, the narrator reveals Joseph being vulnerable about his pain to a stranger in need. Not once, but twice, he has been treated unjustly and he's ended up in a pit. First, he was kidnapped to Egypt. And then once he was in Egypt, he was subject to betrayal. Now, with a decade of humility in his soul, he reaches out to his fellow prisoner for empathy and the gift of kindness, hoping through that this human connection, his dreams might find fulfillment. Now, this is a very important quality for us as believers. Divine gifts do not negate our need for a reciprocal touch of human kindness. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, speaks like a prophet 
when he tells Timothy that he knows that his death draws nigh and that he confidently awaits his crown of righteousness. Yet in the very next breath, he pleads for Timothy to come soon and meet his pressing needs in prison. God keeps even the greatest vulnerable and weak because that is what enhances relationships. So I ask you, do you make connections by being vulnerable with others at work or at school or with other colleagues? Or do you labor alone in isolation? Making human connections out of our weakness is a significant way of spreading God's kingdom. Well, as, as one unjustly accused, the cupbearer should easily identify with Joseph's plight and be eager to help secure his release. Meanwhile, the baker, having heard the good outcome of Joseph's, of, of the cupbearer's dream, now finds the courage to come forward with his dream to Joseph. Verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Well, Bruce Walke makes the acute observation that the willingness of the cupbearer to share his dream suggests his innocence. He has nothing to hide. By contrast, the guilty baker will not share his until he hears a favorable interpretation for the cupbearer. In the dream, the baker looks like a circus clown balancing a banquet of baked goods on top of his head. The description of the dream conforms well to Egyptian customs. Sarna explains that the Egyptian texts, in Egyptian texts, no less than 57 varieties of bread and 38 types of cakes are attested to. <clears throat> what is rather unsettling, however, is that the baker makes no attempt to ward off the threatening intruders to the sumptuous banquet who seem to come in at will. Contrast with the vision that Abraham gives, or his actions when he wards off the birds uh, in the scene in Genesis 15. Joseph, once again, under divine inspiration, has no trouble interpreting the significance of this dream. Verse 18. And Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. As Joseph explains the dream to the chief baker, he leaves the ultimate fate in suspense until the very last possible moment. At first, the repetitive imagery of threes and lift up your head sounds predictable and comforting. That is, until the final metaphor literally turns on its head. Instead of indicating his restoration to office, the image lift up your head implies the most shameful death imaginable. The baker will be beheaded, his body impaled on a pole, 
And finally, instead of a decent burial, birds will peck away at his exposed corpse. Two men, two different dreams, are now slated for two vastly different destinies. We can only wonder how differently they must have slept that night. One will wake to die, the other will wake to life. And for Joseph, perhaps now for the first time in 10 years, went to bed with a glimmer of hope for his future release. Verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position. He placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. So in three days, time, Joseph's interpretations worked out exactly as predicted. The heads of Pharaoh's two chief officials were lifted up, one metaphorically, the other literally. The chief cupbearer was fully reinstated to his office while the chief baker was impaled on a tree. The accuracy of Joseph's inscription fills us with enthusiasm and hope for his immediate release as we expect the cupbearer in appreciation will give credit to where credit is due. But Joseph's hopes are dashed as quickly as they were raised. In the final verse, 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Caught up in the glory of Pharaoh's party and the thrill of his own fortune, the cupbearer totally forgot the one who had cared for him in prison. Now, to fail to remember in Scripture is not a mental lapse, it's a moral lapse. And in this instance, the severity is emphasized by that painful echo, forgot him. As Wonky writes, the wrongly accused cupbearer should identify with Joseph. His insensitivity to Joseph's plight is inexcusable. So Joseph's hopes that divine providence had opened the door for his release through a human agent are deflated. And it will be another two years before he is indeed remembered, this time through another set of dreams. Well, where does all of this leave Joseph? And where does this leave us? Walter Brueggemann sums up Joseph's plight so well. The text brings us to an incongruity where faithful people must learn to live. The butler forgets Joseph now, even as Egypt will forget him. Joseph is left with the question, is there a remembering done by God beyond the forgetting of the empire? Joseph does not know, and the butler does not care. What do we do when we seem forgotten in our dreams? So often we experience the death of our dreams, but do God's dreams actually die? Well, in conclusion, I want to bring us to three reflections. First, the God of dreams. The entire story of Joseph is driven by dreams. God uses a medium that was highly valued in the ancient world and in typical fashion totally usurps it for his own needs. 
Brueggemann characterizes these dreams in terms of three crucial theological intents. First, he explains, they have to do with God and God's rule. In so doing, he is declaring his absolute lordship over all of life. Israel's God alone has the ability to predict and control the future, and he gives that gift of interpretation to whoever he chooses. Secondly, dreams speak about a new situation that cannot be derived from natural powers of observation or any specialized Egyptian school of magic formulas. Neither the butler nor the baker could have deduced their fates apart from Joseph's interpretation. And third, dreams are eschatological, meaning they speak about God's coming resolution of human issues. Their fates will not lie in suspense forever. God will come and act in both judgment and salvation. The gift of dreams had a big impact on Joseph's faith. As recipient of the gift of interpreting the dreams, he was filled with a certain hope that though he lived under a foreign power, God was the only true sovereign, not Pharaoh. And these ephemeral dreams had more power to shape the future than all of, Egypt, all of Egypt's imperial might. We can see in his eager approach to the butler and baker that even serving an unjust sentence for 10 years, Joseph never lost faith in this divine gifts. And the dreams fueled his imagination about his future. Now that same gift of inspiration governed Israel's prophets whenever they had to confront tyrannical powers with, with God's future. As Amos writes, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. And the same gift was given to all believers at the day of Pentecost through the Holy Spirit. God's final revelation was his son. And every believer is given the gift of inspiration through the Holy Spirit to know the mind of Christ and to comprehend a future and a hope that is beyond description in a new heavens and new earth. And that gift should give us bold confidence in spreading the gospel and speaking to issues in a culture that prides itself on its education and technological expertise. So that's the God of dreams. Secondly, what about the fulfillment of dreams? But the tension we encounter is the same as Joseph's. We do not know how our dreams will be fulfilled. How does the dream ultimately get from heaven to earth? What human agent will God use to unlock Joseph's dreams? The first time Joseph imposes his dreams upon his family with no wisdom, and he was cast into a pit and sold into slavery. Ten years pass in silence, and then when the prison door is open and those two officials walked in with their dreams, Joseph found renewed hope. But after ten years in a cell, the same man who seemed to be master of dreams and doctor of destiny is now making a plea for mercy to the very one he delivered. As Brueggemann writes, the powerful man born to rule is also the needful one one of the least of these. 
And God shows, just as it is affirmed, that God shows him loyalty. But in 40.14, he asks kindness or loyalty not from God, but from the imprisoned butler. The liberator of the cupbearer is now himself dependent in the need of liberation. And for all his reliance on God, Joseph must depend on an act of a covenantal neighbor. In like manner, our Lord Jesus, after he powerfully predicts the future destruction of Jerusalem and the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth, is found in utter weakness in Gethsemane, making pleas to his disciples to keep watch as his soul is grieved to the point of death. So faith in God and need for a human touch are not in opposition to each other. Seldom do heavenly dreams get fulfilled without human agents. But in both of these instances, the human touch failed. Joseph was forgotten and Jesus was abandoned. And that brings us to the crux of the whole text, the mystery of dreams. Is God still with us when we're utterly forgotten? As Brueggemann asks, how do we reconcile the grand claim in verse 8, which seems utterly effective, and the unrelieved pathos, which ends in dismay? The answer comes in the most painful of all spiritual disciplines. It's called waiting, waiting, waiting. God is with us, but as Bruce Walkie admits, the closing of prison doors is designed by the Lord to open palace doors, but only in his timing. Joseph must remain loyal to God, not knowing the future of his own existence. Joseph must wait, and so must we. Sometimes all we have left are promises of God's word, spoken into the void of our dark prisons, and in hope we keep our faith alive by fueling our imagination with those promises. In C.S. Lewis's masterful work, Screwtape Letters, the chief devil Screwtape explains to his nephew Wormwood why God, labeled the enemy, withholds his presence from those he loves. He writes, you must have often wondered why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses and at any moment. He is prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning. He'll set them off with communications of his presence, which, though faint, seem great to them with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But he never allows the state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which will have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, 
looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and he still obeys. Those are holy words. In two years' time, Joseph will emerge from prison, vindicated, exalted in ways that would defy even the best of his imaginations. And his imaginations, or his example of waiting, would shape Israel's imaginations for a future out of exile and beyond. As Isaiah wrote, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength, they'll mount up with wings like eagles, they'll run and not get tired, they will walk and not become weary. Our text finds ultimate fulfillment in our Lord. You may remember his cry on the cross when he cried out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that was not a cry of dereliction, but was one of unrestrained lament to cross his agony through a psalm, a psalm of David's. King David's inspired words gave Jesus a sure pathway to process his pain and to keep his faith alive until he was brought to a place of confidence and renewed vision in verses 24 to 31. Jesus was indeed abandoned into the hands of evil men, and evil was allowed to play every card in its hand. But God heard his prayers and did not abandon him to the grave. And in that moment on the cross, he's given a vision, a glorious vision of a future when all will bow down and worship him and a banquet where rich and poor will feast as one. The scripture says, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all families of the nations will bow down before him and dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship and who go down to the dust will kneel before him for those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn that he has done it. The Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy set before him he endured the cross, despising the same. And it was the vision of you and I, rich and poor, the weak and the strong, bowing down together in a feast beyond the grave. And this is the privilege we have now in coming to the Lord's table. This was the vision he was waiting for. And even though we're doing it online, the Lord is present with us. And this was the joy. It was you sitting at his table that he could have a feast with. Now for this benediction. 
Hear these words of Habakkuk and may you identify and have his faith when he wrote, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Amen.